0: hey this is marie from Brado. how are you i wanted to welcome you on a new episode of naysayers where we're going to be discussing about entrepreneurship equestrian sports as well as everything related to the company and how we aim to improve the market in the future if you want to find out more feel free to subscribe follow us on instagram and of course check out our nice catalog of horses. So, take care we'll see you soon ciao, ciao. hi baby how are you how's it going i'm good how are you Brilliant, brilliant. Very happy to be doing this. It's been a while. I think we had each other on the phone like two years ago talking about your magazine. I'm sure we did. I remember that. So, how's everything on your side?
1: Um, it's been really busy. There's so many horse shows going on right now and <laughs> just a lot happening.
0: <laughs> do, you, do you go to all like a lot of horse shows then?
1: Yep. I go to um, at least 60 a year. So, yeah,
0: that's great. I'm sure the, the American calendar right now must be quite quite active. So um I'm super happy to be able to have you on this podcast. Um I'm sure you're not like new to podcasts, as you're the host of one yourself. Um I thought it could be quite good to perhaps start with a little presentation, an overview of who you are, what you do, and what the played horse also is and represents in the in the landscape of the equestrian, American equestrian.
1: Absolutely. Um, I have uh, run the Plaid Horse for eight years. Um, The Plaid Horse is a website, but it's also a community space, and um, everything is based around education at the Plaid Horse. Um, But I believe education should be fun and conversational and and really tie into what people are want to learn, are interested in learning, aren't thinking about and should be learning. So we have so many projects um, that are kind of aligned with that. As you said, we have a weekly podcast where we have so many professionals from the industry come in and discuss different aspects. So a lot of riders and trainers, but then vets and farriers and vendors and clothing designers. And we try to get people in from all of these careers uh, that people don't necessarily think of when they're growing up in the sport. Um, from what I've heard, I haven't spent a ton of time in Europe, but from what I've heard, um, the Europeans are a little better at um, kind of showing people how many different jobs and how many different careers that there are in the sport besides riding. Um, and a lot of Americans grow up like not not really even knowing what those jobs could be. Um, I view this as a lifelong sport and keeping people... Um, educated on their options and being part of what's going on are um, are all really important to me so kind of so we have this weekly podcast we put out nine print issues of the plaid horse per year Um, we have daily articles and social media and um, all of that kind of stuff on very topical things um, that come up so results uh discussions on on various things um just business running and um, trying to be a resource on, on a lot of different fronts. So we have a lot of very basic articles and a lot of opinion pieces. We encourage everyone to get involved and have their voice heard. Um, so we have a lot of content that comes out every day online and on social medias. Um, in addition to that, I am the co-author with Rani Dieball of a children's book of a middle grade reading, reader series called Showstrides. Strides. Um, so there are four books in the Show Strides series so far, and book five comes out later this year. And then I also teach um, college courses at Clarkson University about the equestrian industry and entrepreneurship and um, back to a lot of these ethos, how people can run um, more ethical and long-term businesses in the sport.
0: That's super interesting. I feel like there's so much that is changing um, in regards to initiatives that that many people are starting to take, talking about you. Also, did you see what um, what Erin Lane launched about Encore to also educate entrepreneurs in the sport and stuff like that? Yep.
1: Yeah. Yep, yeah, there are a lot of people doing great work. Um, one of the missions that I have is helping traditional academia understand the horse experience. Um, A lot of college admissions and high school um, counselors don't really almost take seriously how much work goes into the equestrian sport and people who have never been to a barn, well, you know, (laughs) the horse just carries you, right? Um, So, you know, fighting a lot of these stigmas. So having um, accredited college courses was a really important part of, of my program for that reason. And I think there's so many other great great programs where you can learn so much really good information um how out there have,
0: so. how long have you been um involved with the playcast and with oh, the playcast i got it wrong <laughs> the plate horse and with educating equestrians
1: um i bought the plaid horse um eight years ago in in 2014 um so i have been doing that um it for for eight years um and and Educating other equestrians is something that, you know, I've been involved in one minute or another um, my whole life. And I, I really encourage everyone to be involved in it um, at any level. It can be something very simple from explaining things to people at your barn that might not know them. Um, I, I think if we take a more community feel and we all take responsibility for education, we can get so much further in this sport.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, I don't know if I remember this well, but did you acquire... The magazine, or you launched it?
1: Um, I purchased it. Um, you purchased yep, in 2014. Um, the Plaid Horse was launched in 2003. Um, I knew that I would struggle to launch something because I look very young. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I, I was 25 years old and I knew that something with a little history would. Really pursue my goals more quickly. Um, I called around. I originally thought about a website. Um, I wasn't even thinking about a print publication. I I called calls around and asked who would sell what. Um, The plaid horse ended up being a great fit. Um, I bought it on a mortgage plan, so I paid a down payment and then I paid monthly until it was paid off.
0: Wow, Um, that's crazy, actually.
1: Yep, and um, and so I was able to. To make that work um, for me, and it was a very steep, very quick learning curve because um, there n- really nothing prepares you for having a print magazine come out every five weeks.
0: What would you say is the biggest challenge? Because ultimately, it's a media company. You've created such big impact, also with like the importance your Facebook groups have online with the coin communities and all sorts of the various aspects that you guys bring to. To the, to the industry. What are the biggest challenges that you face faced so far being an equestrian entrepreneur and how did you tackle them? I find that topic super interesting.
1: I think that the biggest challenge I face today is just literally time. I believe in everyone's story and everyone's journey and I want to hear them out and, and help them as I can. And um, there's only so much time in the day to, to work with so many people and, and, today's world just has so much communication. Like we just, everyone needs positive reinforcement all the time, which at one level, I don't think is a bad thing, but it's not very scalable. Um, So, so making sure that everyone feels important, you know, is getting their work on track, checking in with all the writers and all the advertisers and making sure that all our bills are paid and all the bills to us are paid you know there's every step has so much communication and I think I think that's my biggest challenge um the biggest thing I've done to address it is um I've done a lot of work on myself like um reading Brene Brown's books and listening to her stuff and, and really going through um really going through my um my own like shame um and because it used to be like every time we made a mistake, I would beat myself up or I would have anxieties, anxiety about having conversations with people because I was very much like, what if I make a mistake or what if I make a mistake in this email or what if I make a mistake in this pitch or this transaction? And it slowed me down so much because we have so many interactions every day and, and so many conversations and it slowed me down so much to, to beat myself up and to overanalyze and to stress and have all this anxiety about um a- about each conversation and each interaction, and expecting this perfectionism out of myself um and so really, just working with myself to to remember whose opinion matters um i you know we get so many Facebook comments on on literally everything, which is wonderful, and I love the people of opinions and I love discussions, but also like people say pretty horrible things to me about me. <laughs> Um, in a lot of different forums and, and really putting the time into myself to say, like, does their opinion matter to me? Would I ask them for advice? You know, would I believe them if they said something positive to me? No, like, why am I believing the negative? Um, that's really helped me be able to have more productive and, and more discussions and, and get more work done in a day.
0: I feel like mental health as an entrepreneur is tremendously important and people do not realize the level of challenge that we have to deal with, especially, especially when it's a business that's run with such ambition, yet not the biggest team in the world, when we starting without the biggest resources in the world, I identify with a lot of what you say, because I started also in my company from the grounds up very much. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to scale a business, it's hard to run everything in the right way. And I think that your, the, your approach to, to being vulnerable here today, is very, is very, um, very inspiring. I also, I also like Renee Brown. I read Dare to Lead and yeah. I think it's been one of the biggest mindset shift in my leadership, in my approach to entrepreneurship and in my understanding of how us women entrepreneurs, women founders fit in the big picture because it's not always about being perfect. It's not always about having our shit together and everything perfectly run and perfectly done. Like, sometimes I feel like taking a step back and saying, okay, it's fine. I'm allowed to mess up. I'm allowed to, to you know, to not have all the answers and I'll figure it out is, is very, very important. And I find that super, super inspiring. So I think that you should be very, very proud of yourself in that one.
1: Thank you. And yeah, I hope everyone who hasn't taken the time to to explore some of what Brene Brown has to offer like does, because as you said, I mean, I think it's, it's the one thing that I've done in the last 10 years. that's produced the biggest mind shift, um, mindset shift for me.
0: It's, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one, especially in our sport, especially in our industry. I feel like also considering that the, the, the mo- modernism that you're bringing with the digital media the approach of, of how you want things to be portrayed in a certain aspect, the value that you might want your company to represent. It's hard. It's difficult knowing the challenges that we face on a constant basis in the industry. So um, I wonder, you've achieved so many things. What would you say is the vision, the long-term vision for your, your media company, as well as yourself um, for the next years to come?
1: Um, I think part of our success has has been that, you know, in a lot of ways, I I don't have an overarching vision. Um, I follow with what, you know, what people are looking for and and the conversations that they want to have. And, um, and I don't, I don't get too stuck on, on any, any one thing, but I I think the longer I do this, the more I'm just obsessed with, with community. Community is what makes our sport great. Um, And it, makes it a place where people want to raise their kids and it makes it a place where we have, you know, this level of lifelong investment in so many aspects of the sport. And I think as Americans, um, you know, we're, we're very individualistic and that's caused us to become like more and more lonely and um, have less support systems. And like, I, I look at, at daily life and and people are building so many more boundaries and they're not really friends with, people at work anymore and um you know everyone is obsessed with boundaries nowadays and and that's not a bad thing and and boundaries can be really good but on on the flip side like I, I think that they don't leave things open for community and support and taking care of other people and and going above and beyond and I think that as long as we are involved in some aspect of making our community stronger and helping people support other people and having horse shows be a place where we are, we're building people and growing people and letting people you know ha- make a living. And the more fair business we can do, the more our sport will grow and it'll be great business for everyone.
0: Absolutely what is your what is your approach and position upon the new changes that are happening innovation wise so for example um with how we try to digitize sales how other people try to digitize data exchange how some companies like um showgrounds live are digitizing you know the 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 videos of the show and the lives that may be happening how clementine guttals work and lucy davis work with um with, grant, with Preview yeah. or their competitors jump here. How, how do you position yourself upon innovation in, in the industry? What do you think of the overall movement of digitization?
1: I, I think it's amazing. Um, I mean, growing up in this sport, um, I mean, every step of digitization has been so good for the sport and opened up the educational possibilities so much. Um, one of the things that hugely attracted to me about being in equine journalism and the plaid horse is that I, growing up, I always had questions and, and I couldn't find information, Um, you know, it was like pretty much pre-internet and I would go to our local library and take out every horse movie and every horse book. And then, you know, the professionals would tell me that they didn't have time to talk to me or didn't have time to answer my questions. And in hindsight, I wonder if they even knew the answers to my questions. Um, And now in today's world, like so much information has opened up to people. If you want to learn if I wanted to watch a horror show growing up, I had to convince my mom to like drive me to go stand at the ring and either spend the day with me or pick me up and have, you know, her whole day doing that. Whereas like, I think the live streams have been game changers, um, you know, YouTube and people getting to post um, so much content. Like if you truly want to watch the masters at work, it's always better in person. But if that's not, viable to you. I mean, I watch so many European shows on live stream, um, that I could never make it to with my schedule. And, um, I get to watch all the top European riders all the time, even if I just watch their round in the jump off or their winning round or something like we're so much more clued into what's happening. And I think it, it creates so much more potential for, for everyone from, you know, the backyard breeder who has one or two, but can get their their information and their babies out to the right people um, all the way to the top riders. And, and if you want to learn about how to do this sport better, there has never been a better time and, and it's because of all this technology. Um, I think a lot of people all the time in this sport, but um, you know, I don't think this is a new generational problem, um, but I think a lot of people don't take the time to truly learn and truly use the technology to become better and, um, you know, the technology is not a substitute for learning and understanding. The technology is an aid and you need to put in the time and use this incredible resource to learn and understand the sport the best you can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think it's also a challenge for us as founders, as entrepreneurs to find a way to communicate effectively the message that we're trying to share and the approach we're trying to bring to the market and needs innovation um, in the right context. And I think that the communication sometimes may be the barrier because it's going to take a little while, in my opinion, for everyone to wrap their head around it. But that's fine. We've always been slow at understanding <laughs> new concepts. And, yeah, I, I, you know, I have so many people angry at me after
1: listening to our podcasts.
0: But, um, yeah, the market is slow. It's a slow industry for, you know... Um, technology and I think that there's a huge very very big barrier of entry for, for new things, new approach but I think that I think that we're getting there and I really believe that the show jumping industry is, is taking a nice turn even though it's a bit slow, it's going to get there where do you think the industry will be 5 to 10 years from now? I like to ask this question to people
1: um, I think that um, on the American side we have very little um, grassroots horse shows, smaller end. Um, People start at a very high level um, horse show and continue. And um, from what I understand, that's not the European model at all. Um, And I think until we can have more grassroots and local shows and and local um, opportunities for people, we're we're really gonna start to struggle staffing the top of the sport when there's not a healthy bottom, you know, staffing that healthy top it becomes a huge challenge. And we're already seeing some of the repercussions of that. Um, so one of my goals, you know, <laughs> if, if what I'm doing, you know, goes well, I really hope that we can start these community centers again and, and start having more local opportunities where people can sleep in their own beds at night and you don't have the cost to travel and you don't have the time away from your family, but you can get great experience for your horse. Cause we really don't have that in the U.S. right now. Um, so I think, I, I would hope that the U.S. would move towards a more European model and, and have more horse show options of different levels that, that had good size classes and, and good size fences and a lot of opportunity. Um, so, so that would be my dream of where the sport's going um where I actually think it's going I mean it's gonna be a big struggle because we have a lot of environmental restrictions coming up a lot more people are living you know in cities or way out in the country and and we're getting less when I interview people on my podcast all the time I'm like how did you start riding And, and so many of them say oh we drove by the we drove by a farm on my way to school or on my way to something and i i saw the horses and i love them and i asked my mom or dad to take me um and if people aren't driving by barns and are we have a bigger bifurcation between like city and country life and and people aren't kind of exposed to horses on the daily we're gonna we're gonna struggle to attract new people into the sport to keep you know I, i the pricing doesn't help keeping people in the sport and not having local options prices a lot of families out. So I, I think we're going to have to really work hard to address all of these things in the next five to 10 years.
0: Yeah, this is a big debate. I feel like the, the complexities of the industry in terms of, well, the barrier of entry, the first one is economics. Um, yep. And I don't want to see the sport become this thing that is just for the hyper wealthy, because when we talk of horses for six figures, it's not wealthy. It's, it's another level of wealth that a lot of people that work, you know, full-time jobs that are very high paying, still can't afford. And I think that it's, it's a little bit worrying to see where that is going. And and that's something that, you know, I come from a middle-class family and my, my mom had to work very hard to pay, you know, classes for me when I was a kid. Um, I come from a horse horse family also. My dad is a racehorse trainer, but we didn't have like crazy money. So that's kind of how I got involved in the sport itself. But if I look at it now, um, from a perspective in which my family wasn't in the sport, I don't know if I would have become a rider because it is expensive. The barriers of entry are very high. So I think that we'll see what happens with this. But I do feel like the the role that you're playing on your level and the role of everybody that's playing, you know in opening opportunities in the sport, whether it's to become an entrepreneur in the horse industry or work in a stable, or anyone that wants to work with stuff related to horses, it still creates opportunity for people that are not necessarily from a very wealthy background. And I do believe that education can play a big, big role in that aspect too. So I'm looking forward to see what happens and to to see us potentially collaborate in the future and do something that would be also exciting
1: absolutely would love that
0: for sure for sure i'll definitely catch up on this um thank you so much for for joining this episode we'll keep it short and sweet so that we can maybe do a catch-up sometime soon and uh and yeah thank you very much sounds great thank you i'll see you later bye hey how was that i hope you found a lot of value and a lot of learnings in this new episode of naysay's For more information, feel free to subscribe to the podcast, get in touch with our team, and remember if you're looking to either sell or buy a high quality show jumping horse, you know where to find us. See you soon, on to the next episode of No Sayers,
1: and have a lovely beginning of the summer.